morning. Uh, let me start uh, by uh, wishing a happy Canadian Thanksgiving to all the Canadians. That's uh, tomorrow, as you know. Hey, congratulations, hey. So, we're in Romans, and we have been for some time. This uh, fall, we're starting on the final year of Romans. Uh, I was uh, reminded in, in uh, my class this week by my canon law teacher that there are, there are three calendars that you always have to keep in mind doing what I do. There's the calendar of the liturgical year, which begins in Advent uh, and goes through. We are now in what is called ordinary time, which is the time after Pentecost. Uh, there is the calendar of the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the January to December calendar that, that we all follow. So we celebrate the New Year on January 1st. And then there's the calendar that everybody really follows, which is basically the academic calendar because it all basically goes from Labor Day to, to Memorial Day. Um, and uh, so we've been doing the same thing. This our fourth year in the Roman series is going to run from, you know, fall to spring. Uh, and we are in the final five chapters, 12 to 16. We have been taking some time with this for a few reasons. One, because um, we can. Um, another being that this is a long book, and it is quite an important one. They're all important, but perhaps Romans has a, a special place, especially for those of us who are Protestants, uh, in understanding what it is that God wants us to believe about uh, Jesus Christ and what that, uh, his life, death, and resurrection mean uh, for us and for his people and for the entire world. Uh, but the other thing that is good about taking some time in a book is that we get to wallow around in it. We get to swim around in it for a, a while and get a feel for, for what, the, what the author is doing, uh, get an understanding of, of the way the whole thing flows. Um, we, we can notice things. It's kind of the difference between uh, you know, uh, traveling by foot and traveling in an airplane. You know, and the airplane's going to get you there quickly, but uh, if you're traveling by foot, then you can notice stuff as you, as you go along. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that I, I, we're noticing here as we get to this last section of Romans is that Paul is taking a turn, right? In the, in the first uh, 11 chapters, broadly, he's, he's talking mostly uh, about uh, who God is and what God has done and what that means for us and how that works in our lives. Uh, and in this, these last five chapters, he's talking excuse me, a lot about how we are supposed to live in light of that. This is the application section. And Paul does this in a number of his letters where he'll kind of front load the theology and then at the end you get a whole bunch of application. Um, certainly he's doing that here. Uh, and, and this is, in many ways, where all the work we've been doing for the last three years cashes out in terms of how we actually live in light of this. The, the s title of our series is Undivided, comma, Conquer. Um, and the reason for that is that as, as I read Romans, and as, as I've been teaching it, and as you may find it useful to read Romans, I think that, that the underlying motif 
that Paul is drawing on is one of conquest. There are some people who follow what's called New Exodus theology, and what they say is that what Paul is doing here in Romans as well as in some of his letters is he's trying to evoke the Exodus, where God rescues his people out of slavery, right? Remember the story? I'll just rehearse it real quick. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. Uh, Charlton Heston comes along, leads them out. Uh, They spent 40 years in the desert where they're given Torah. That's right at the beginning. And then because of their disobedience, then they end up having to wander around for 40 years before they can enter the land that God has promised them. And the deal, the reason that they couldn't enter the land for 40 years, the reason they were Uh, specifically the disobedience that was involved, was their failure to enter the land by faith when they were supposed to. God had said, okay, now it's time, go into the land. They sent spies. The spies said, the people there are enormous. There's no way we can enter the land. You've got to be kidding me. And God says, well, actually, in your case, no, you won't. In fact, you guys won't enter the land at all. None of you who are alive now, except for the two spies, Caleb and and, uh, Uh, Joshua, who are faithful. The rest of you are going to die, which made the last couple years, that 40-year span, a little awkward as people were kind of poking their heads in the tents of the really old people. Kind of like the the small-town obituary writer, you know, calling people up, just checking. Yep. So when God's people are then able to enter the land, they conquer not in their own power, but they conquer in God's power. The ark is, is marched at the front, uh, and, and this symbolizes the fact that God is the one who is doing the fighting for his people. But uh, what's going on in the Exodus is preparatory to that. What happens in the Exodus is that God's people are rescued out of slavery, and they are given Torah, they're given the, the resources that they need to live well in the land once they enter it, and then God empowers them to enter the land as he has called them to do. Uh, but the whole point of the exercise was not to go out in the desert and to get Torah. The point of the exercise was to get into the land. So the exodus is preparatory to the conquest. The exodus is not where the story is supposed to end. In fact, the, the, the wilderness, the desert where they are, is sort of a, a no place. It's, it's, it's the place where they get equipped. You think about in the Matrix uh, which we did because, of course, Mark showed up with his leather jacket on this morning, looking just like Morpheus. Uh, you know, Morpheus uh, brings Neo into the construct, and it's sort of this blank space. That's where they get equipped with whatever they need, awesome-looking glasses and cell phones and, and leather jackets and lots of guns to go do the things that they're supposed to do. So in, in a lot of ways, that's kind of how the wilderness works in this story. God equips his people, but then the idea is that they're supposed to go in and take some ground. Uh, and, and we see this, uh, for example, in, in Romans 7, where Paul is basically talking about taking the ground of, of the self, right? Dealing with your own uh, conscience, your own guilt, and your own feeling that everything you, you're supposed to do, you end up failing to do, and the things you don't want to do, those are the things you do. He's talking about what, it, what, it, what it's like to be in the process of taking ground in, in, your own, in your own self. And here in, in chapters 12 to 15, uh, I think Paul's talking about taking ground uh, in the church. He's talking about the unity of the body of Christ. He's talking about the way it works for the Spirit to be leading his people to holiness, 
not only individually as before, but specifically as the church. How do we treat each other? How do we take care of each other? How do we encourage each other? What are the ways that we can get in each other's ways that we need to avoid? And then at the very end, he's talking about the particular ways in which he thinks God is calling him specifically to be involved in taking ground in the world in furthering the incursion of the kingdom into enemy territory, not only in our own hearts, not only in our church, but also in the world around. Specifically, Paul thought this involved a, a, a trip to Spain, um, which is kind of interesting given the way that the sermon will end. But, uh, but the whole idea is that, that Paul is, is teaching us that really th- there is division where there doesn't need to be division. There, we don't need to have a divided self. We need to be undivided. God is calling us to be undivided, to be wholly his. We don't have to live like we're being torn apart anymore. No, we're no longer slaves to sin. We are Jesus' servants, so we should live that way and not constantly live like we're being pulled apart. The, The church is one. The body of Christ is one. And so we should be operating together as one body, and we need to be treating each other in the ways that are going to be conducive to us doing that. Um, So it's an undivided self. It's an undivided church that is called to conquer, to take land, to expand the kingdom of God. Now here in chapter 12 of Romans, most of what Paul has to say is to everybody. You've noticed there are parts in Romans where he kind of addresses certain people, uh, certain groups of people. Sometimes, actually, he addresses a certain group of people, but he's really talking to a different one. Here, uh, in, in verses 6 to 8, as we looked at last week, he says we've got different gifts according to the grace given us. So, if your gift is prophesying, then use that in proportion to your faith. If your gift is serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraging, then encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, give generously. If it's executive leadership, then govern diligently. And if it's showing mercy, do it cheerfully. But the rest of chapter 12 is stuff that's applicable to everybody. I mean, if your spiritual gift is not leadership, and if you're not in a position of leadership, things are going to go really wacky if you try to start leading. I mean, if your gift is not teaching, and there's nobody there to listen to you try to teach, it's just going to be awkward if you're trying to teach. But the other things that he's talking about, these are things that all of us are supposed to do. So beginning in chap- at the beginning of chapter 12, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and to prove what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. By the grace given me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God's given you. Just as each one of us has one body with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And he goes and gives the specific instructions about gifts. And he goes on in verse 9 to say, love must be sincere. So hate what is evil. Cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Or it could be be willing to work with your hands. Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. And if it's possible, insofar as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God to do that. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll keep burning coals on his head. So don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I think what, what Paul is laying out here, and we'll, we'll unpack it in more detail in the coming weeks, but what Paul is laying out here is the kind of attitude that we need to have with respect to one another if we're going to make it as the body of Christ, if we're going to be healthy, if we're going to be able not just to get along, but to take care of each other and to be faithful witnesses to Christ in the world that is all around us, that he's put us in. He's calling us to take the things that are our own priorities, that are our own goals, our own preferences, our own pleasures, and to lay them aside. so that instead we may focus on the needs of others. And it starts, really, in verse 3, when he says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Don't, don't be thinking you all that, Paul says. But think of yourself with sober judgment. Now, there are some people who find this comes really easy. There are some people who don't have any difficulty at all not thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to. And I think what Paul is saying here is really not so much to them. It's to most of us who tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, who look in the mirror through rose-colored glasses. And so, in many ways, what we have to do in order for that to work is if we are thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to, we need to work at thinking of ourselves in a low or a humble fashion. I think the overarching word that I think Paul would have us bear in mind here is Humility, because none of this is going to work at all without humility. And to, to help us to do that, I'm actually going to call upon some of the great uh, spiritual uh, authors uh, of, of, uh, of the medieval church. Thomas Akempis, who's 12th century, uh, and Bernard of Clairvaux, who was, uh, I'm sorry, Thomas Akempis was 14th, and Bernard of Clairvaux was 12th century. Uh, you may have heard of Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ, which is a, a classic book of, 
of spirituality. And right, I mean, like the, the second little section that he gives us, very, very close to the beginning, he says, you know, the, and, and, and just listen to this and, and enjoy the, the old-fashioned language because I have a cheap old translation. Uh, the more cunning thou hast, if thou not live thereafter, the more grievously shalt thou be judged for the misusing thereof. Therefore, raise not thyself into pride for any craft or cunning that is given unto thee, but have the more fear and dread in thy heart, for certain it is that thou must hereafter yield the straighter account. If thou thinkest that thou knowest many things and hast great cunning, yet know that there be many more things that thou knowest not. And so thou mayest not right wisely think thyself cunning, but oughtest rather to confess thy ignorance. Why wilt thou prefer thyself before another, sith there be many others more excellent and more cunning than thou, and better learned in the law? If thou wilt anything learn and know profitably to the health of thy soul, learn to be unknown and be glad to be holden vile and not. I'll say that again. If thou wilt anything learn and know profitably to the health of thy soul, learn to be unknown and be glad to be holden vile and not. The most high and profitable cunning is this, that a man have a soothfast knowledge and a full despising of himself. Also not to presume of himself, but always to judge and think well and blessedly of another is a sign and token of great wisdom and of great perfection and singular grace. If thou see any person sin or commit any great crime openly before thee, yet, not, yet judge not thyself to be better than he, for thou knowest not how long thou shalt persevere in goodness. We all be frail, but thou shalt judge no man the more frail than thyself. I think it's appropriate that at our Ash Wednesday service, I always read a section of Imitation of Christ as, as a, uh, yeah, Julie? Vile and not, and be glad to be holden vile and not. In other words, learn not uh, what, what, you should, what you should seek after is not to be well-known, not to be thought well of, but for people to look at you like you're a schmuck and you're worthless. Which, again, is something that comes naturally to some of us, and I don't think that's the person that Thomas is talking to here. Uh, at our Ash Wednesday service, I always read a portion of the Imitation of Christ because it aligns with what's going on in that service, when I place the ashes on your foreheads, what do I say? Remember that you are dust, and to dust you will return. The word humility derives from the Latin word for dirt, humus. For us to be humble is for us to recognize that we are dust, and to dust we will return. I think the first step of humility is to be willing to see ourselves as we really are. To recognize that we are 
not all that. To recognize that as much as the glory of God is revealed in those creatures that are made in his image, and as much as we are being transformed day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are sinners by nature and by choice. We are frail. And we shouldn't think of anybody as a greater sinner or as more frail than ourselves. And it's when we do this, Thomas says, and I'll skip ahead a little bit, that we can turn from ourselves to God. He said it's good that we have sometime griefs and adversities, for they drive a man to behold himself and to see that he is here but as in an exile, and to be learned thereby to know that he ought not to put his trust in any worldly thing. It's good also that we suffer sometime contradiction, and that we beholden of others as evil and wretched and sinful, though we do well and intend well. For such things help us to meekness and mightily defend us from vainglory and pride. Again, what he's saying there is it's good that people speak against us, and it's good that people think poorly of us, and it's good that we have a lousy reputation, even if we actually are doing the right things and intending to do the right things. So even if you have the best intentions, and even if what you're doing is good, and everybody thinks you're a schmuck, Thomas says, actually, that's good. Doesn't make sense to us that it's good. He's going to tell us it's good because they help us to be meek, and they mightily defend us from vainglory and pride. If everybody is telling you that you're a schmuck, it's difficult for you to hold to the alternate opinion. Because we're then going to have to take God the better to be our judge and witness when we be outwardly despised in the world and the world judgeth not well of us. If everybody is thinking poorly of us, but we feel like, hey, I'm not so bad, then we turn to God and say, really? Are they all right? God, are they, are they correct that I'm a schmuck? Therefore, a man ought to settle himself so fully in God that what adversity soever befall unto him, he shall not seek, need to seek any outward comfort. When a good man is troubled or tempted or is inquieted with evil thoughts, then he understandeth and knoweth that God is most necessary to him, and he may nothing do that is good without him. And he sorroweth, waileth, and prayeth for the miseries that he rightfully suffereth. Then it irketh him also the wretchedness of this life. And he coveteth to be dissolved from this body of death and to be with Christ. Then also he seeth well that there may be no full peace nor perfect quietness here in this world. So Thomas is saying that it's good for us when we suffer other people thinking poorly of us because... It keeps us from being proud, and it drives us to our knees. It drives us to seek our approval, not in other people, but in God. To seek to have what we are doing honored by the audience of one, 
not everybody else. And then Bernard of Clairvaux, the 12th century saint, had this to say in his little book, The Steps of Humility and Pride. He said, When in the light of truth men know themselves and so think less of themselves, it will certainly follow that what they loved before will now become bitter to them. They're brought face to face with themselves and they blush at what they see. Their present state is no pleasure to them. They aspire to something better and at the same time realize how little they can rely on themselves to achieve it. It hurts them. And they find some relief in judging themselves severely. Love of truth makes them hunger and thirst after justice and conceive a deep contempt for themselves. They're anxious to exact from themselves full satisfaction and real amendment. They admit that to make satisfaction is beyond their own powers. When they've done all that is commanded them, they acknowledge that they are still unprofitable servants. They fly from justice to mercy by the road truth shows them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. They look beyond their own needs to the needs of their neighbors and from the things they themselves have suffered to learn compassion. Here Bernard is saying that what happens when we see ourselves as we really are and when we turn from ourselves to God, when we get our understanding of what's true from the source of all truth, then that is going to turn us from having an unhealthy obsession with ourselves to being genuinely focused on the needs of others. First we see ourselves as we really are, then we turn from ourselves to God, and then we turn from ourselves to other. We move, as he says, from justice to mercy. We develop compassion when we see how desperately all of us need help. And that gives us compassion for our brothers and sisters, and even for those who are not members of the body of Christ. If I may be so bold, I think this flow fits well with the flow of Romans. If you look at the first four chapters of Romans, it's all about Paul saying, you think you all that? You think everybody else is in the wrong and you're the one who's in the right? You think you have any grounds at all to justify yourself, to say that you're doing the right thing, to say that your motives are good and everybody else is just screwed up or at the very least misunderstanding you? No. No, 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 no. Nobody gets to stand up in front of God with his chest out. Nobody says to God, I'm doing you a favor by showing up in your presence. All of us find ourselves struck dumb before the majesty and the holiness and the glory of the one true God. All have sinned, Paul says. All fall short of his glory. And I think the next seven chapters, 5 to 11, are about turning from ourselves to God. Paul talks about the resources that are given to us, how we, as we, in, in baptism, we die with Christ and we rise with him again. 
we die to sin, we die to ourselves, and we get to live in the resurrected life that he has and he makes available to us through his spirit. And that's, that's true for us individually in turning ourselves to God, and it's true for us as the church, as his people, as we understand what it means for us, and I think this is part of what's going on in 9 to 11, what it means for us to be living out our identity as the people of God, as the people God, God is called to be his people. And then in the, this final section, these final five chapters, 12 to 16, I think Paul is laying out what it looks like when we turn from ourselves to others, when we embrace the mission of God, God's mission of cosmic reconciliation, and we recognize what our place in that is. When we do the work of living out our new identity in Christ, making a difference in the world around us that God has put us in, that God has put us in not just because he wants to see what would happen if we face opposition, might find it interesting. He's put us here because we are to be his agents of reconciliation. God is working out his purposes in and through his church, his people. Which, again, is obviously not the kind of program you're going to want to get on board with if you're focused on your thing, right? I mean, it's only with humility that we can say, whatever my preference is, Whatever my agenda, whatever my goals are, I'm going to lay all that down so that I can cooperate with what God is doing here in my community, so that I can get on board with what God is calling us to do here in the world where he's put us. And this is a process, and this is something that requires constant attention. This is not something as many of us have noticed that comes to us naturally. This is something that we pursue, this virtue of humility. We constantly find ourselves having to go through this cycle of seeing ourselves as we really are, turning from ourselves to God so that then we may turn from ourselves to others with mercy and compassion. And yeah, the great spiritual masters have a lot to teach us about this. If you don't have a copy of The Imitation of Christ, I'd encourage you to get yourself one. There's a bunch of them out on the, on the web that are free, public domain. Some are less modern than others. There are some that are modern enough that you can work with them without laughing at the words half the time. There's so much good stuff. And one of the best that I've encountered actually was given to me a few years ago by Kevin Jones. The, the, there's a cardinal, Rafael Mary Del Val, who was a Spanish a Roman Catholic cardinal in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Because in a sense, Paul did get to Spain eventually. And so, uh, to close, I'll invite you to join with me in this litany of humility. I'll tell you what the response is. I'll read each line, and then you'll respond, deliver me, Jesus, for the first two-thirds. And then the last two-thirds, it's, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. But for this first part, 
response is, deliver me, Jesus. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honored, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred over others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebukes, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being slandered, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. And now the response is, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be more loved than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be esteemed more than I, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That in the opinion of the world, others may increase and I may decrease, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be chosen and I set aside, Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may be preferred to me in everything. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. That others may become holier than I, provided that I may become as holy as I should. Jesus, grant me the grace to desire it. Amen.